process of, of trying to do an in-person service uh, while still being very cautious. And uh, we decided, the session has decided to at least go ahead and put together a committee. Now, uh, again, um, we can't open the church um, in an efficient way, at least, if, if you don't help. And so we need help. We need people to uh, not only help plan, but help execute. And so if you're open to doing that, please, please don't hesitate, but to sign up, letting me know so that we can take the next steps forward. But um, in terms of opening date, uh, we're still working on that and waiting and, and seeing, but I think um, at this point we are, are willing to be ready um, to do that. And so just uh, keep that in mind, but uh, please, uh, if you can sign up for that. All right. <clears throat> Well, uh, this is, um, we're in chapter seven. I'm kind of just going over, you know, a few things here in the rest of Corinthians. We're not going to go over everything, but we are still in the subject or in the area of talking about sex. And so, again, if you have little kids or you have children here that you're, you know, not so sure that you want them to, you know, hear about what this passage might be, um, you know, you better take them out right now. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get into it here in chapter seven. And the reason why I think we're, we're looking at this uh, is because I think this is an area of our lives, uh, not just as singles, but especially and also as married people, which I think Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, something that we need to hear, something that we need to think about. Uh, we need to hear God's voice in this area of our lives, even though we consider it something very personal and something very private, a very personal and private area of our life. And I think it's relevant because really, you know, what they say is your character, who you are as a person deep down is really what you do when you're all alone. What you do when you feel like nobody's looking, that's who you really are. And this is especially true then uh, in the issue of, of, of what we call sex, right? And so last week in previous chapter, I think Paul gave us a, a view of sex uh, as he saw it, as, as a union between two people. And it, it was somewhat negative in terms of, hey, this is the reason why we need to be careful what we do here uh, with our bodies and with people and, and with God. And, and so now here in chapter seven, <clears throat> like I promised last week, uh, he's going to address married people. You know, uh, you might have thought last week was all about singles and you're married and you have kids now. And so you don't really have to worry. And so it's not relevant to you. But here it is. It is relevant um, to us. And Paul addresses it. And it's very important. He turns to chapter seven and he wants to do the opposite. He, he wants to give us more of a positive picture. Whereas maybe last week, because he's addressing the sin of this church and what they were doing, it was maybe a, a somewhat of a corrective picture or a negative picture. Now what he wants to do is to give you more of a positive picture. And if you remember, there are two extremes that Paul is dealing with here in this church. From uh, the end of chapter six, Paul addressed the problem of this church. And he's addressing the, the people in this church whose view of sex was so liberal and, and so, I guess, um, unconstrained that they were actually visiting temple prostitutes, pagan temple prostitutes, uh, on the way to service. And uh, they didn't feel like anything was wrong with that. They had this slogan, if you remember, that they used to say to themselves, all things are lawful. Being pretty much what they're saying was anything goes. 
But here in our passage, we, we see something different. We see also that there's another group of people who also had their slogan, and we find it here in verse 1 of our passage. This group of people, they, they, they've swung all the way to the opposite end of the pendulum, and their slogan was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is what this group of people are saying, completely different from, from what I think most people were saying in, in the Corinthian culture. It probably wasn't the most uh, popular or, or the most catchy slogan in Paul's time, uh, and neither would it be even, even in our time. You know, um, I still remember in, in college when, when I was especially gung-ho about God and church, um, me and some guys, we, we, we came together and we, we formed uh, what we call the BTR club. You know what the BTR club stands for? It, it's Bachelors Till Rapture, right? Bachelors Till Rapture. And it was like, you know, we're, we're just going to stay, you know, single and, and pure and all that kind of stuff. And we were so gung-ho about it. And then a few months later, some of us began dating and that kind of fell apart. It, it wasn't easy and it wasn't popular. But we see here basically two extremes, right? On the one hand, there's a sort of unguarded sexual promiscuity. And yet on the other hand, there was this almost sort of hostility towards sex altogether. Uh, there was a group of people that, that saw it as, as dirty, something as unworthy of a Christian and something always to be avoided, okay? And, and you might think, well, how in the world could, could someone actually think like that about sex, right? Because no one we know today maybe thinks about it this way. Well. Let me just give you a perspective then, even in our context today, you might not think like this, that, that sex is unworthy of a Christian always to be avoided, uh, at least not in a whole, but consider this, consider someone in our sexually broken world uh, who are carrying a lot of deep scars today with regards to this issue. Maybe even some of us who enter into marriage with all kinds of emotional baggage, um, all kinds of vulnerabilities, all kinds of wounds, and even fears. Uh, so, for example, let me give you an example, even in our culture. If you were watching pornography for a very long time, and all you knew about sex was what you saw on the internet, then you have a distorted view, a selfish and perverted and shameful view, a, a view that objectifies other people, and you know this in your head, but that's all you knew, then to see everyone who think about sex, that's what you saw. It, it's a very hard thing for you to talk about. It's a very deep issue. Or on the other hand, consider this. Maybe you or someone you know has had a past experience that was very hard, very, very sinful, very difficult, that they've been hurt. They were maybe traumatized. They were even sexually abused. And so even to think about then sex, it, you kind of wince. You kind of, you, kind of, uh, you know, cringe at the idea and, and, and you don't even want, like the idea of sex. And so you may not think that you have or anyone has this view like sex is always unworthy and to be avoided, but because of certain reasons, maybe you or someone else you know has something very close. And it's possible then. But when you look at Paul in chapter six and chapter seven, here's what Paul wants to do. Paul wants to avoid these two extremes, right? Paul wants to give us a more Christian vision of human sexuality that defies both extremes, right? Uh, he wants to give us a picture of sex within the bonds of a Christian marriage that is affirming and that is even celebratory, while at the same time carefully locating it all within God-given bounds. So he's not saying anything goes. There are boundaries, but neither is he saying this is something that Christians need to avoid and never talk about or never even want to do. Um, it, it, he wants to put it in the right place. 
Okay, and so this is a sermon that is, that's going to address here uh, the married context. And if you're not married today, um, you might not think this may have anything to do with you, but hopefully, you know, if God wills, one day you will, this is something you think about. But next week, we'll talk about the singles uh, and singlehood and, and even maybe a little bit in the struggle of this, of this issue a little bit more carefully. But three things I want us to see here that Paul, I think, gives us with regards to sex and the boundary of marriage, okay? Three things. First, I think he's going to give you uh, a view of sex as a kind of defense, Okay. A kind of defense. Second, I think he's going to give you a, a, a view of sex as a, a kind of duty. All right. And third, I think he's going to give us a, a view of sex that is a form of devotion. So three points here, very simple, uh, but, but also very challenging uh, is this sex as defense, sex as duty or responsibility, and, and sex as devotion. All right. That's what he gives us in these five verses uh, with regards to issue of sex in, in marriage context. All right. So let's look at this carefully then. So uh, sex is defense. The Corinthian believers were, were in the situation, they were in the society that was profoundly um, hedonistic. Right. And, and, you know, very, maybe in some ways very similar to our own culture today. And some of them, not like unlike some of us, they, they found it very hard to resist this gravitational pull of their permissive sort of anything goes sexually permissive culture, okay? And then there are others, as we just noted moments ago, who swung to the other end of the extreme saying, well, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, period. No sex. Hey, you know what? We're Christians and the path of godliness is no sex. All right, that, that's important. Now, what you've got to understand here is this. This is uh, what we call celibacy. That's what they're promoting here. Uh, that's who Paul is addressing. They're not just promoting sexual abstinence, okay? They're promoting celibacy. And Paul is responding to them. He's responding to this group of people in verse 2 and 5. You look at this. He's very clear. If you are attempting a life of celibacy, which I don't think anybody in our church is, but if you were without the gift or without the call of God to a single life, okay, then you will be actually opening yourself up to a lot of temptation and a lot of sin. That's what he's saying, all right? So, for example, verse 2, he says, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her, her own husband, right? Now, again, just to reiterate there in, in verse 2, the word have, each man should have uh, his own wife, that word verb have is a synonym for sexual relationship, okay? And so, again, you're being told here, that it's the lifelong union of a man and a woman in marriage that Paul says is the appropriate venue and context for sexual intimacy. That's what he's saying again. But then he says in verse 5, uh, to married couples, Paul says that you are not to neglect sexual intimacy except for a season and then only by mutual agreement and then come back together. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in verse two, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, verse five, because of possible temptation and your lack of self-control, you should get married. That's what he says. Now, 
here's what I think Paul's doing here. He's giving us some benefits here. And this is not the end all of everything about marriage and sex, okay? This is just a point that he's addressing that's relevant to us. Because there's relational benefits, there are spiritual benefits, but there's also very practical benefits. And I think Paul's being very practical here. And he wants us to know this, that sexual temptation, okay, is not just a singles problem. It's a people problem. And sexual temptation is not even just a man problem. It's also, it can also be a woman problem. And here in our passage, it's not just singles, it's also a married problem. And in that context, it's even a little more serious. And so what Paul is trying to say here is this, that neglecting sexual union within marriage, according to verse two and five, is actually to expose yourself to all sorts of temptation. You know what they say, um, the best defense is a good offense, right? And what Paul's saying here is this, that if you want to defend against sexual temptation in the marriage context, here's the irony. If you want to defend against sexual temptation, the best defense against sexual sin in marriage is sex. Right? The best defense against sexual sin in marriage is sex. And so Paul is saying the major defense given by God against sexual sin is sex itself, as God ordained as it ought to be, right? So he's basically saying, look, have sex. It's important, okay? The context of marriage, in the context of marriage, God has ordained that sexual intimacy should then strengthen and protect each partner from these temptations. That's just one practical, I think, a benefit that Paul's giving us with regards to uh, the marriage context and sex. And so Paul's saying that a healthy sexual intimacy within marriage is a vital defense ordained by God uh, to help you uh, fight sexual temptation. Now, it's ironic, isn't it? I think before we're married, you know, maybe you thought, yeah, well, you know, you want to have sex all the time, right? Before you're married, you know, you want to have a lot of sex. But then after marriage, after 10, five years, 10 years of marriage, after two or three kids, maybe not so much, right? Maybe not so much. But Paul here, contrary to the previous discussion, uh, in the previous passage, he's saying this, in the marriage context, have a lot of sex. It's important. It's a good defense against sexual temptation, all right? So that's sex is defense. Now, the second reason, or the second thing about sex in the context of marriage is this, sex as duty. And uh, I want us to look at or listen to these verses, and we need to be very careful because it's, it's very dangerous, I think, how we could interpret this. But when you look at verses three and four, this is what he says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. We we need to be careful there because if we don't, if we fail to do that, uh, we're going to distort this passage badly and, and even dangerously. Because when you look at this passage, especially in our culture today, we tend to zero in here on verse 4, the part where Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And this is a passage, and this is a, a letter that's pretty much, let's be honest, it's written in a largely patriarchal society where women, in fact, were considered virtually second-class citizens, where they, they weren't even given 
uh, their rights as, as human beings. And, and that's, this is, that's the culture that Paul lived in. That, that's that's the, the people that he was dealing with. And so if we left it here, right, and you just read that part where wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does, if we just left it there, then we would be clearing the way for all kinds of misogyny, all kinds of abuse, and it would be terrible. And you'd be wrong. What would we do with this? Well, so here's what I want us to see. And this is why we need to look at this passage carefully. Notice this. First in verse three, Paul addresses husbands first, not the wife. He addresses the men first about the conjugal rights of the wife or of the women. He addresses the men first. And he is clear in verse three that the wife has rights. She has rights, and the men are commanded to respect that, okay? And, and that might seem pretty obvious to you, but it, in this context, this flies directly in the face of Jewish tradition of, of Greco-Roman culture in those days, where the husband's rights were always privileged over the wife's rights every time. And yet Paul begins talking to the husbands first, talking about the woman's rights. And Paul immediately asserts, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's a radical statement in Paul's time to make. Listen to one commentator with regards to this passage. He says this, quote, it is impossible to find another reference in the literature of the ancient world, which teaches that the husband surrenders his body exclusively, exclusively to his wife in marriage. In fact, in the secular world back then, it was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery, not if, but when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or any other woman, it was not a sign that he did not love her, but it was simply a way of gratifying his passions, end quote, right? It is impossible to find this statement in any other ancient Near East literature. No one ever thought like this or talked like this. But Paul starts here. He starts by affirming the woman's rights and he commands the husbands to respect those rights. And then he says that the same thing applies to the wife regarding her husband. In other words, each is to understand the other has rights to this whole area, okay? And generally speaking, when we usually talk about rights, what we do is we tend to stand upon our own perceived rights and then make demands of others. This is my right, therefore you should do this, right? I expect this, this is my right, right? This is how we do it. But I think what Paul's doing here is this, he's placing the obligation upon us to think about the rights of others first not just in the area of sex, but, but also everything else in life. You know, when I do premarital counseling, which I know I've done for many of you here, there, if you remember, there, there are at least four fault lines that tend to run through most marriages. We tend to fight about money. We tend to fight about in-laws or parents. We tend to fight about children. And, and we tend to argue about sex. And over and over again, these points become a friction, a source of friction and tension in, in our marriages. And this is why sex might be one of those major points of friction, because when one partner demands his or her rights at the expense of others, oftentimes pain, uh, grief, tension, anger, and distance enters into that relationship. And Paul here is saying that our attitude should be one of service. 
that we are to serve our partner, to give to them for their sake rather than demand what we believe is our due. Okay? And this is the general rule that extends into the area, not just of our sex lives, but everything else in, well, in our life as well. And I think what Paul is saying here in this passage is this, neither partner has absolute authority over themselves. Each has a claim upon the other in marriage so that love in the bonds of marriage brings each partner to a place of servant-mindedness, seeking what's best for their spouse. Paul even says that therefore at the, at the end of verse or the beginning of verse five, he says, therefore, don't deprive each other. Don't deprive each other, right? And so the point here is this, that for Paul, there's a sacred obligation designed by God for the good of both partners in marriage. Um, you know, let me, let me try and put it this way. You know, this is not a sermon about how to spice up your sex life in your marriage, okay? <laughs> if you want that, you, you know, talk to somebody else or, or read other books. Um, I'm not trying to suck all the romance out of, out of you know, your sex life. But, uh, you know, not to shatter all the romance uh, of the thing, but just for the sake of clarity, Paul is teaching us that ordinarily sex within marriage is a Christian responsibility. And the way he speaks about it, there's something profoundly Christ-like here in this pattern of mutual service and consideration and self-giving that Paul describes. So Christ, you remember, you know, think about him. He's the man who gave himself, body and soul, to his bride. He gave himself completely for her. That's how he loved his bride, the church. He didn't stand on his rights and demand from the church. He relinquished his rights. He didn't stand on his rights, but he voluntarily surrendered his rights. What? For the good of his bride. And that was his pattern throughout his earthly ministry. He would surrender his prerogatives, taking the form, as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, taking the form of a slave for the sake of the church. He emptied himself, right? That's the mindset that Paul is using in, to bring into even the area of sex in marriage. And this is very different, I think, from, from what's popular today. You know, in our culture, romanticism, you know, we tend to consider emotional happiness or personal fulfillment or self-actualization to be the main condition for marriage. And with regards to sex, if there is an interpersonal happiness, then sex is warranted. And then comes marriage, right? But then when, when the love dies, when the feelings die, it's also permissible to walk away from the marriage. But in the biblical view that Paul is giving us, the main condition of marriage is not emotional happiness or personal fulfillment or self-actualization or whatever that means for you. The main condition of, of, of marriage is a binding covenant, a binding covenant. And that gives us a different picture of sex because in the romantic view, sex is more like self-expression, self-gratification, self-involvement. But the biblical views of sex is this. In that covenant marriage, sex is always self-giving. Self-giving. And so there's a gospel pattern that Paul is saying we find in marriage, even within the sexual union within marriage, of self-giving for the good of the other, of surrendering for the good of the other, not demanding, not standing on what we perceive to be our due, there is no place for the kind of abusive demands that sometimes find their way into a Christian marriage, okay? But neither is there any place for manipulative, 
withholding of sexual union for selfish or spiteful ends. And that also sometimes finds its place in Christian marriages as well. Okay? So Paul is saying this, if you're married, good, have sex, because sex is a defense against sexual morality, and sex is also a responsibility as you consider the other person, okay? It's a responsibility, it's a duty. The last thing here I think Paul gives us here is this, it's sex as devotion, okay? It's defense, it's duty, and now it's devotion. And that's here in verse five. Listen to verse five, and this is what Paul says. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there he says it again. Don't deprive each other of, of, of this, okay? This is this is a good thing. Don't deprive each other. That's the normal pattern of a healthy, loving marriage. But Paul makes one exception. He says that a couple might break off their intimacy for a limited time, for a season, by mutual agreement, in order to focus on something in a sustained way on prayer. Now, what, are, what reasons would, would a couple have to do this? Well, like one reason could be there, there's conflict issues, and, and, and maybe that's something that you need to pray about and, and work on before you come back together. And, you know, that would be a practical thing. What, uh, but another reason some scholars say is this. I think what Paul has in mind here could be this. It's somewhat analogous to fasting, right? You know, the practice of fasting where you fast from food. When you fast from food, you take a break from food. What you're saying to God is this. Food is necessary for my body, but you, God, are even more necessary for my welfare and my soul. I need you more than my daily bread, and so I'm fasting. That's what we're saying when we fast. And so when we give up food for a specific season to pray and to cry the Lord, we're praying to the God, we're praying that God will hear us and be close to us. But in the same way, I think Paul here in this passage is suggesting that sexual union, I know this thing is about sex and you might think it's so important to you, maybe not so much now, but it was before, I don't know, but it, it, it's such a big thing. It's so normative, it's so necessary, even in marital context, that can be, see, even that, even that can be set aside for a time so that a couple could pray together and say to one another, as much as sex is important, even though we need one another, more than, more than we need sex, we need God. We need the Lord. And so we take a break from it and we come to the Lord in prayer. Now, I don't know however you want to make uh, clear of that. It's a form of devotion, but it's clear. This much is very clear. The Apostle Paul expects Christian couples to be praying together. He expects them to understand that there's a higher call upon their life, their marriage, that might even at times intrude upon their regular routine and then cause them to reorder their priorities than their own perceived physical needs. Right? And so if you're married today, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you even pray together? Do you ever pray together? Those of you who are Christian and married, uh, do you pray together? Do you find ways to, to give honor to Jesus Christ? I mean, would someone, a non-Christian, looking into your marriage, right, would say, hey, there's something distinctively different about your marriage or distinctively Christian. Is there anything there? Would you pray together? Okay. So there's a form of devotion, even when talking about sex. But even 
after you have taken that break for a limited time, look at what Paul says, come together again. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right? So again, he's really pushing for sex in marriage. Okay? He's really saying it's important. It's important because it's a good defense. It's important because it's a responsibility to one another and love and commitment. And it's also important as a form of devotion. In other words, for Paul, marital sex is not some distraction uh, from godliness. It's not some intrusion into the Christian life. It, marital sex is not something that's non-Christian right? He's teaching us here, isn't he, that sexual union in marriage is a normal part of Christian devotion, and God is glorified, and he's pleased by it uh, when we are engaged in it in the right way, in the right perspective. It's a form of devotion to him, believe it or not, okay? So there you got it in a nutshell. I think that's what he's addressing. He's not talking about everything about marriage and the problems that we might have there, but I think there are at least three reasons. It's a good defense, it's a responsibility or duty, and it's devotion. Next week, we'll talk about uh, what that means for the singles and how we deal with that and what singlehood means. But I think in this marriage context right here, this is what he gives us. All right. And I pray and I hope that those of us here who are married, uh, once again, consider even this area of our life, no matter how long you've been married. Okay, let's pray. 